Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Romans chapter 11, we're going to be talking about Israel. Israel. So what's the deal with Israel? And it really is a very timely study when you kind of take a step back and look at what's going on in the world, in particular, what's going on in the nation of Israel. And so we're in that section uh, of Romans where Paul deals with Israel. And I, I really love just kind of the layout of Romans because, you know, the first five chapters of Romans, they're really all about justification. Uh, you know, our great need for justification, how we can receive justification, that we are justified not by works, but by faith. And after Paul discussed the wonderful truth of justification by faith, boy, in chapters 6 through 8, he really dove into the topic of sanctification. That although we've been saved by faith through grace, man, there's still a work to be done. That the day I got saved, I still struggled with sin. And the Lord didn't save me to leave me where I was. And he didn't save you to leave you where you were either. And so there's this process of sanctification whereby we're set aside, but we're also being perfected. We're being matured. We're being made into the image of Jesus. And that last chapter pertaining to sanctification was Romans chapter 8. And all these beautiful promises found in Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8 begins with the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The middle of the book of Romans chapter 8, or the middle of the chapter, you know what I'm saying, the middle of chapter 8, the book of Romans, uh, talks about how all things are working together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. And then chapter 8 ends with the, the wonderful truth that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And so we have all of these promises for the church, for the believer, for the Christian, communicated by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And really, again, Romans 8 just kind of stacks those things up. That our, our future sins have been dealt with. There's no condemnation. That our present circumstances, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is we're going through, and the Lord is working those things together for good. Man, that our future is secure because nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so when you consider Paul writing this letter to the church there in Rome, you have to remember that, that Paul, he's a very Jewish dude. He has a very Jewish heart. And he loves his fellow countrymen. And we saw that really come out as he opened up these chapters 9, 10, and 11 regarding Israel, where he began chapter 9 by saying, man, if there's any way that, that my fellow Jew could be saved, even if it meant that I myself were condemned, that I myself were accursed from God, Paul says, I would lay down my own salvation if it somehow would mean salvation for my countrymen. In chapter 10, he said, man, this is my heart's desire is that the Jew would be saved. That's Paul's heart. 
And so you look at the promises to the church on one side, all about the justification and all the sanctification, and there's no condemnation, and, and presently God's working things together for good, and our future is secured. But you hold that in juxtaposition to God's chosen people, the Jew, and you say, well, what's going on with them? For you see, the Jew, they have rejected Jesus. So what does that mean for them? Is God done with them? Is God through with them? Is, is their fate settled? And the answer to that question is no. And Paul begins to unpack that. In, in Romans chapter 9, Paul explains and dives into the reality that Israel indeed has rejected Jesus. A full scale, no question about it, they have rejected Jesus. But in chapter 10, he goes on to explain what, what the issue was, why Jesus was a stumbling block. And chapter 10 ends with the reality that God's arms are still open to his Jewish people. That just like he saved the Gentile, that's you and me, by the way. Anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. That just like God saved us, the Gentile, by faith, boy, his arms are wide open to save the Jew in the same manner. And now chapter 11 goes on to answer that question, is the Lord done? Has he cast off his people? And the answer to that question is no. No, God is not done with his people. And, you know, this morning as we look at this, really the underlying takeaway, the underlying application for us as Christians, because we could stand here today and say, well, who cares about the, the Jew and their plan and, and what's going on? What does that have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us, because as we look at the story of the Jewish people and their relationship with God and how God remains faithful, even when Israel is faithless. Boy, what a reminder. What an encouragement to us that when I blow it, when I'm going through a, a season of difficulty, when I'm not as spiritual as I should be, boy, the Lord is not going to kick me to the curb or throw me away. But his promises to, to us are sure. Not because... We're amazing, but because God is amazing. And so let's just dive right in. Uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 1. Uh, Paul says this. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have served, or I have reserved, pardon me, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, uh, then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Uh, and, and we'll leave it just there for this morning. So, so Paul, he, he, begins this, uh, he begins the close of this topic of Israel by really asking that question, hey, is God done with the Jewish people? And really, in his question, Boy, therein lies the answer. I say then, has God cast away his people? So uh, they're his people. And because they're his people, 
God will not cast them away. And that's what Paul says. Absolutely not. In the Greek, it is an emphatic no. It's the strongest language you can use in the Greek language to say, absolutely not, no way, Jose, no way, no how has God forgotten or cast off his people. And so we can know that moving forward. God's not done with his people. But who are his people? Because we could say that we're his people. I mean, rightly so. Couldn't we this morning, as Christians gathered together to worship Jesus, say that we are God's people, that we are his chosen? Well, we wouldn't be wrong about that at all. But the context of this scripture is super important. And I bring that up this morning to say this, that that God's chosen people being spoken of here is clearly Israel. Uh, you know, you have to take it in context with the rest of the chapters that come before it. And I say that to say this, that there is a theology, that there is a teaching that God is indeed done with Israel. That because the Jew has rejected Jesus, that God is done with them, cast them off, and that he no longer will keep his promises to them. And when we see that God is going to keep his promises to his people, uh, that he's speaking of us, the church, as the spiritual Israel. Now, that, that's just not true. That's called replacement theology. And before we moved on any further, I mean, this is the text that a lot of people will use to support that. So I wanted to just snuff that out right away. Who is the chosen people that God is talking about? And that is Israel, God's chosen people. Will he reject them? No. But what is it that makes Israel, what is it that makes Jew God's chosen people to begin with? Have you ever thought about that? I go, what, what is so special about the Jew? And the answer to that question really is absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. Uh, the Lord didn't choose the Jew because they were better than anybody else. He certainly didn't choose them because they would be easier to raise spiritually. I mean, you want to talk about the most stubborn, stiff-necked people uh, in the history of humanity. The Jews are definitely in the running for that. But why did God uh, choose the Jew? Well, Deuteronomy, Moses tells them. There in Deuteronomy 7, he says, The Lord did not set his affection on you, the Jew, and choose you, because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So why did the Lord choose Israel? Really the same reason he chose us, that they might be a trophy of his grace, that, that, that they might be a, a demonstration of his mercy and his love and his faithfulness. See, his faithfulness. Uh, we can look at the Jewish people and say, man, they have absolutely 100% denied Jesus and turned from God. And yet the Lord is not done with them. Why? Because they are his covenant people. Right? Did, did you pick up what Moses said? That, that God chose them to demonstrate his faithfulness in keeping the promise that he had made to their forefathers. Now, what is that promise that Moses was speaking about? What was that, that covenant? Well, that covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. See, Israel is God's covenant people. And they're God's covenant people because God made a promise through Abraham. So you got to scale way back in history, right? We're going to get into it this morning. We're going to get into some Jewish history. And the nation of Israel started with one dude, and his name was Abraham. And through Abraham, he bore a son, and his name was Isaac. 
And Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, who had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we're going way back to kind of the origin story of Judaism, if you will. And that story began with God making Abraham a promise in what is called the Abrahamic covenant in uh, Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that was the promise that God made Abraham. That, that Abraham would be made into a, a great nation. That is the nation of Israel. And that his name would be great. And through that nation, all the rest of the earth would be blessed. Now, how is it that the earth is blessed through the lineage of Abraham? Jesus, right? The answer is always Jesus. It's, it's easy. It's, it's through Jesus. The Messiah came through his lineage, and upon believing in Jesus, boy, we experienced that blessing. And so that was the promise that God made to Abraham. That Abraham, you're going to have a ton of, of kids. Your kids are going to grow into a nation, and through that nation, the, the rest of the world will be blessed. Well, you fast forward to Genesis chapter 15, and God continues on in this covenant, because here's the catch with Abram. Abram was an old dude. He was 80 years old. Now, I don't need to give you guys the talk about the birds and the bees, but there is a, a biological clock. And there, I haven't seen a lot of pregnant 80-year-old ladies. I'm just saying, maybe in the Guinness Book of World Records, there's something that might disprove my point. But Abraham said, listen, Lord, we're old. How is this going to happen? I believe you. And it was accounted unto Abraham as righteousness that he believed there in Genesis 15. How, Lord, do I know this is going to happen? And the Lord told Abraham, he said, Abe, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go and I want you to round up some animals. I want you to go get a heifer, three years old. I want you to go get a goat. I want you to go get uh, some, some other things, a turtle dove, uh, a ram, and a young pigeon. And this is right there in Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to bring these animals before me, and I want you to split them open from stem to stern. I want you to lay them out across from each other. And Abraham did that, and after Abraham split those animals open, he's just waiting for the Lord to show up. All right, like I did this, Lord, are you going to... And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, until he couldn't wait any longer. And finally, when Abraham got tired of shooing away the buzzards, he fell asleep. And as he slept, there was a vision. And in that vision, there was a lantern, a smoking furnace, that went from one side all the way through the middle of those animals to the other side. Now, you guys know this because I touch on this all the time, but what was taking place is called the cutting of a covenant. And in our day and age, right, we have contracts. You go to buy a vehicle, you go to buy a house, you go to buy a cell phone, anything now has a contract. And you sign your name that says, I'm going to stick to the terms and the conditions of this, and if not, I'm liable. Well, in our day and age, those terms and conditions, man, we just break contracts, like they're, they're no big deal, honestly. I mean, that's just the, the reality of our culture. Back then, it was a different thing. And they didn't have contracts, they had cutting covenant. And so when you made a deal with another man, 
you would take an animal and you would split it in half and you would lay it opposite of each other and you would meet that man in the middle and you would shake his hand. And what you were doing is you were agreeing to whatever terms you were agreeing to and you were saying, if either one of us goes back on our word, let it be done to us as was done to this animal. Yeah, that's a pretty vivid, graphic sort of illustration, right? And so that is exactly what God was doing with Abraham. There was a deal that was struck. But did you catch the way the deal was struck? See, did Abraham meet God in the middle and shake his hand and say, all right, Lord, you keep your end of the bargain and I'll keep my end of the bargain. That's not the way it worked. See, the Lord went all the way through. The implication being that the promise being fulfilled does not hinge upon Abraham's ability to be good or bad, but it hinges on God's ability to be good, and God is good. And so the covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham will be fulfilled not because Abraham was good, but because God is good. And that is such a refreshing truth. It was true for Abraham, and it's true for us as, as well. You see, because Abraham enjoyed the old covenant, we enjoy the new covenant. Uh, what is the covenant that we're under? The covenant of the blood of Jesus. Why is it that we have been made right with God, accepted by God? How is it that our sins have been forgiven? How is it that God is working all of our circumstances together for good? How is it that our futures are secure, that there's nothing that can separate us from you? I'll let you in on a secret. It's Jesus. It's nothing that we have done or can do. It's not our own strength or power. It's, it's of the Lord. And so this is the covenant. This is what makes Israel God's people. He promised them, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to see you through. That's the way it's going to be. But here's the interesting thing is that attached to this covenant of God being their people, of making Abraham into a great nation, of all the other nations of the earth being blessed through his lineage, there was a promise of real estate. There was a promise of land, the holy land, the, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And there in chapter 15 of Genesis, after the cutting of covenant, uh, God goes on to say, hey, listen, uh, this is the land that I'm giving you. And he gives the geographic description of, uh, of Israel. Uh, and on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, so on and so forth, the Jebusites, lots of ites. He says, listen, I've given you all this land. God goes on to reiterate this promise in Joshua chapter 1, when Israel is actually entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land, this piece of real estate in question. And God tells uh, Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Now, here's the thing you have to understand is that the, 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 the piece of property, the real estate that's being described here is much larger than the, the Israel that we see on the map today. When you look at that little sliver of land that causes so much tension in the world today, it's just a little piece of property. Do you realize that 
Siskiyou County is almost the same size as Israel. I mean, Israel's about a quarter bigger, uh, but still, it, it kind of puts things in perspective uh, that, that Israel is just this little place. But it, it's much bigger, according to the Lord's description, than we see it today. Now, why do I take all the time to talk about this this morning? Because I found it very interesting that we're discussing God's people, Israel, and God's promise to keep his people. And what makes his people his people in light of what's going on in our culture currently. Uh, in light of what's going on in Israel currently. In light of all the things that we see taking place. Uh, it's very interesting to me because God very clearly says this land, this land belongs to these people. You see, but the current narrative in our culture is the complete opposite of that. The, the narrative in our culture right now is that Israel, Israel is the occupier. Israel is the colonizer. That Israel has stolen the land from the native Palestinian peoples. But here's the thing, is that is not accurate in any stretch of uh, the truth. Uh, it's not true archaeologically, it's not true historically, and it certainly is not true biblically. You see, uh, you know, this has all really come to light recently. You guys watch the news, you know what happened there on October 7th when the terrorist group Hamas uh, raided the, the south of Israel, breaking through that, that border, that barricade, that fence. Uh, via bulldozers and motorcycles and, you know, little hang gliders. And they went in and they, they massacred 1,400 people, grandmas and babies, raping women. And it, it was just demonic and it, it was terrible. Uh, but ever since that day, right now, Israel is defending herself. And, and we see the news is just blown up about this whole situation. Israel, the occupier. Israel, uh, you know, the, the, the terrible colonizers. And the Palestinians, the displaced natives. But here's the thing that you have to, to understand is that, that there has never been a nation of Palestine in the history of the world. And I, I want to preface this whole discussion with, I'm not coming against any people group. God loves everybody. God's heart is for the Palestinian to be saved and come to Jesus. God's heart is for the Jew to be saved and come to Jesus. God's heart is for Hamas terrorists to be saved and to come to Jesus. I'm stating these facts because it's important for us as Christians to be versed in the truth. What does the Bible say and what is it that we're being fed in the media? So there has never in the history of the world been a nation of Palestine. The, the, the Palestinian people are, they're Arabs that have come from other surrounding Arab nations, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, all the rest. They're, they're Arab peoples. And you can trace who has held power over that land from the most ancient of times until right now. So this drum that you hear that these Palestinians were here first and Israel is stealing their land, 
you can go back and look at history. You know that, I mean, the Canaanites had it before Israel, right? We can see that through history very clearly. And then when God drove out the Canaanite people, he gave that land to Israel. And when Israel walked in disobedience, right? Because remember, God's covenant to be Israel's God is unbreakable. But God's covenant promised to the land was conditional. Remember, we discussed this in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where if they walk in obedience, blessing, they can stay in the land. If they walk in disobedience, well, then the Lord's going to remove them. And we know that the Jew, they walked in disobedience. They rebelled against God and served idols. And so we have the great diaspora where the Jews were, they were dispersed, first by the Babylonians. And then we had come on the scene, uh, the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after them, the Greeks. Sounding familiar? Sound like Daniel's prophecy and the statue and all the nations, right? Uh, after the Greeks, there was a, a, a Ptolemaic dynasty, and then there was a Seleucid dynasty, the Jewish Hasmonean kingdom, which really turned into the King Herod. You guys remember King Herod? But then King Herod, he was under the rule of who? The Romans. And the Romans, then the Byzantine Empire, then the Byzantine Empire, the Muslim Caliphates, then the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire to Britain, right? Now we're getting to things that we're probably all a little bit more familiar with. And then after Britain, they gave it back to Israel. And we have the modern state of Israel. And so we have this very clear history. We can go to the Bible. By the way, the most accurate, trustworthy history book that you can get your hands on, we're studying through this morning. Do you know that? The Bible is always right about everything. It has been proven over and over and over and over again. So if then we can trace this, this, this whole heritage back, and there's never been a Palestinian people, well, then where does the name Palestine come from? Why do we call this people group the Palestinians? And it's an interesting story. In 135 AD, there was a Roman emperor by <clears throat> the name of Hadrian. And he, out of spite for the Jews, because the Jews rebelled against his authority, named that region, uh, really, Syria, Philistia, uh, which is now Palestine, which is from... Uh, the, the word Philistines, which was Israel's greatest enemy. So you see, so Israel rebelled against the Roman emperor, and he said, well, I'm going to get you guys. Jerusalem is now going to be called Capitola, and Israel is now going to be called uh, Philistine. It's going to be called Palestine, after the Philistines. It, it was a move to just kind of crush their soul, to degrade them. But that name stuck. And, and, and so... It's interesting today that now there are a group of Arabs who grab onto the name of Palestine, who historically, that name Palestine had nothing to do with the Arab people. It had to do with the Jew being mocked by a Roman emperor. And so, so now we have this situation, right? Fast forward to our modern times, to the news that we're seeing, to this constant struggle and strife over this piece of land. Both sides saying, hey, we own it. We were here first. No, we own it. We were here first. First of all, we can go back to history, and we can say, actually, it's very clear-cut whose land this is. And you, never you will never hear anybody on the news be like, hmm, I wonder what the Bible says. <laughs> Let's take a look and see. Because even the people who hated the Jews back in those days said, that is Israel. It was undeniable. It was unquestionable. But here now, there's this, this raging war, tragic war. 
But here's the thing that I want you to understand about this, is that Israel, they desire to have a state of their own and to live in peace. But here's another thing that you won't hear, is that Israel also acknowledges the right of Palestine to have their own state and live in peace. Did you know that? And history has proven that over and over and over again. During World War II, there was uh, the Balfour Declaration where the, the English were saying, hey, you know what, we need to really recognize Israel as a people group and give them back some of their land after the, this great disbursement. You fast forward to when uh, England, the British, took control of that region uh, from the Ottoman Empire, and now, now Britain's in control of that land, and it, it's in constant turmoil. The Arabs rebel against Britain. Britain can't figure out what's going on, so they put together what's called uh, the, the Peel Commission, a group of men sent to this region to find out why there's such strife. And what they found there in 1936 was that there were two people that wanted to govern the same land. And so they came up with what is called the two-state solution. You guys have heard that on the news. It's, it's mentioned all the time. And that means that we're going to divide the Holy Land into two places, a Palestinian state and a Jewish state. And that original uh, uh, move there by the Peel Commission was to give the Palestinians 80% of the territory and the Jews 20% of the territory. And say, hey, the Jews said, hey, let's, just, let's live in peace. We'll take that. We'll take our little chunk and we'll just live in peace. And the Palestinians said, absolutely not. Well, then you fast forward to 1947, after the atrocities of Hitler and World War II, the United Nations came together and they said, all right, we want to, to get involved here and we are going to give Israel a place of their own. And they divided the Holy Land into two states as well. British control ended in uh, 1948 and Israel took control of that land. And so did the Palestinians say, all right, we'll take our, our section and live in peace. They didn't. Israel was one day old. And what happened? The Arab nations around Israel tried to wipe Israel off the map. Egypt and Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Transjordan all attacked the one day old state of Israel. But miraculously, and I say miraculously because God is the one who won that war, they defeated all of their enemies. And so you fast forward. Time keeps going on. And still, there's this tension. There's this unwillingness to get along. 1967, you have the Six-Day War. Egypt, uh, the, the leader of Egypt says, we're going to wipe Israel off the map. Israel preemptively says, I don't think I'm going to let you do that. And so Egypt, or not Egypt, but uh, Israel wiped out Egypt and uh, Syria, mobilized against them, begged Jordan not to get involved. Jordan got involved. Israel whooped Jordan too and then ended up with all this property. Uh, property in Jordan, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, uh, the Sinai Peninsula. But then in an act to bring peace again, they say, hey, listen, we will give the Palestinians East Jerusalem as their capital. All of the West Bank, this whole section of Jordan, all of the Gaza Strip, if you will just live in peace. And their response to that again was what? The, 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 the Arab League came out with their famous three no's. No recognition, no negotiation, and, uh, and no peace with Israel. And they abide by that 
today. And it goes on and it goes on. And it's important that we understand this because in this conflict, there are two sides. And one side desires peace and the other side desires the other side dead. You see, if Israel were today to lay down their arms and if the Palestinians were to lay down their arms, tomorrow there would be no more Jew, right? If the Jews laid down their arms, there would be no Israel. If the Palestinians laid down their arms, there would be peace. And, and, and listen, I don't say this to be controversial. I say this to bring truth to the conversation that we see because, again, as Christians, we should be biblically minded. And this narrative that we're being fed nonstop, every news article you read is about the poor Palestinians. And do I have a heart for the Palestinians? Absolutely. Are there victims that are, are being wiped out? There are, and it's tragic. I'm not trying to belittle that. But we have to look at the scale of the conflict and say who is actually responsible. Because here's the thing. The Palestinians elected their own government freely. And who did they elect as their government? Hamas. And it's not like they're like, oh man, we didn't realize that these guys were against the Jew. Their motto for the last 30 years has been, we love death more than the Jew loves life. It's in their charter to kill the Jew. And this is who the Palestinian elected as their government. When we saw on the news, you know, the horrific things that had happened in Jerusalem, and we saw the bodies of those that were killed and kidnapped, brought back to Palestinian territories, what was taking place? It was rejoicing. And who were those peoples that were rejoicing? They were not warriors, they were civilians. See, it's a people group that agrees with their government by and large. I've heard as little as 80% and as much as 90%. So there's a degree, there's, there's a, a fraction of people who are caught in the middle. But again, can we blame Israel on that? Who says, and right now the United States is saying, Israel, you guys need to put it, you need to ceasefire. You guys see that? What does Israel want? They're just like, hey, just give us back our hostages and we'll call it good. What's so hard about that? But we're putting pressure to a ceasefire, and we see all of these images. Remember the hospital that was bombed by Israel? It was actually not the hospital that was bombed. It was a parking lot, and it wasn't bombed by Israel. It was bombed by a jihad missile that went sideways, right? And, and there was a misrepresentation of the, those who were killed. And then, you know, that, that Israel is bombing, you know, just ambulances now. Well, yeah, they're painted like ambulances, but they're carrying bombs, you see the people who are just wiped. You see the devastating pictures, the ones that break your heart, the ones that make me cry, where there's a father carrying his daughter, just battered and bruised, and you see the Gaza Strip blown to smithereens, and you say, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. And a part of you says, how could this happen? Why would Israel do this? But the story you're not being told is that Israel went in 24 hours before there and said, get out of here. Get these civilians. We're going to bomb this to smithereens. But see, they agree. They're brainwashed from the time that they are in kindergarten. I'm not kidding you. Through the TV shows they watch, to the curriculum they learn at school, to the camps they go to in the summertime, to hate the Jew and to lay down your life for your land, to lay down your life for Allah, is honorable. And so you have to understand that, that there's more to this story than meets the eye. And so why is it important that we understand this? 
See, because when we buy into this whole situation that Israel is the aggressor, that Israel is the oppressor, that Israel is the occupier, that they are the colonialists, right? Then we can justify whatever we want. Do you know that anti-Semitism is up 400%? 400% since this war began. You guys catch that article where, you know, there's a flight that was coming in from Tel Aviv to Berlin, or it wasn't Berlin. Where was it? It was somewhere in Russia. It was some, it was some dad in Russia. Uh, dag dad or, or, or dog dad. It was some, 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 some place in, in Russia. But the people in Russia had heard that there was Jews on the plane. And they, they rushed. They formed an angry mob. They went to the airport. They broke through barricades. They broke through doors. They rushed the tarmac to kill the Jewish people that were on that flight. And, and they were evacuated out of there. Uh, in, in Berlin, houses are being marked with the Star of David. This should cause you to just shudder. What does that remind you of? Uh, exactly. And so these views that we have, they're critical. It's super important that we understand. And we don't have time this morning, and I spent way too much time on this than I meant to, and so we're not going to get to where we wanted to go. But there's a reason that I chose to go down this path, because Paul tells us, He's going to go on in verse 25, and we're going to talk about it on, on Wednesday night. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant. So, so Paul, he goes on to say that, that God is going to save the Jewish people. But before that, and we're going to talk about it on Wednesday night, Paul says, hey, don't be arrogant, Christians. He's talking to us. Don't be thinking that you're better than the Jewish people just because now you're saved and they're not. Because God's not done with them. And then he goes on to say, not only don't be arrogant, but don't be ignorant. Don't be foolish. Don't be caught up in what's going on. Don't be duped with the, the narrative. And, you know, I mentioned it before, the sons of Issachar, they're in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, where it says of the sons of Issachar that they were aware of the times that they lived in, and they knew what they should do. Are we, as Christians, can we say that same thing? Do we look at the current events through the lens of biblical truth, or do we look at the current events through the lens of popular culture? And when we do that, we end up with college professors, like at Columbia University, who hear of the atrocities taking place in Israel and say, that's awesome, who are teaching our young adults. We end up with people sitting as members of our Congress who think that, hey, listen, you know, that's what, that's what Israel gets. If you want to occupy a people and suppress them, I mean, you get what you got coming to you. See, it's dangerous. And as Christians, we're not, to be, we're not to be arrogant. We're not to be ignorant. So what are we to do? Well, why do I bring this up? What, 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 what is our role in this? And first of all, let us be those who pray. Right? Very simply, we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're to pray for God's people. We're to pray for his will to be done in our lives and in the world. Let us be a people of prayer, praying that Jews get saved. Right? The Jews are God's chosen people. But they're not saved currently, not all of them. God will save his nation, but Israel's lost. Just because we say Israel is God's chosen people doesn't mean that everybody who is a Jew is saved. They right now spit at Christians. They spit on the name of Jesus. They hate Jesus. Pray for their salvation. 
Pray for Hamas. Pray for those who have been brainwashed. Pray for those who have been victimized. Pray. But not only pray, be, uh, be aware. And we're going to get into Elijah's story on Wednesday night now because Paul uses a couple examples of, of why God is not done with the Jew. And he starts with himself, and then he goes on to talk about Elijah. And Elijah's story is important because Elijah, well, he was in a place where he was really discouraged. And Elijah was really discouraged because he didn't understand what was going on. He looked around and saw a very dark world, a world that had turned from God, a a world that was filled with sin and destruction, and he thought he was all alone. But you see, Elijah was wrong. And so not only are we to be those who are, you know, not arrogant, not ignorant, not only are we to be those who pray, but we're not to be discouraged. We're not to be taken back by the things that we see in the news. It's so easy to flip on the news and be like, oh my gosh, World War III is coming. You know, go get as much Top Ramen and ammo as you can. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting Top Ramen and ammo, for sure. But let's not lose our focus. What is our focus to be? The answer is always the same, Jesus. Let our focus be on you. Let us be those who are looking up, looking for the Lord to come. Is World War III on the horizon? Holy smokes, man, it might be. Is the Lord coming soon? Boy, it's sooner today than it was yesterday. There's no doubt about that. You start looking at who's involved in this conflict, the money that Russia is sending to Iran, the way that, you know, you've got other nations ready to jump in on this situation, not just Hamas from the south, but Hezbollah from the, I mean, it's it's insane. And who's backing these people? Russia has gone on the record to say, hey, we're no friend of the Jew. That's new. Anyways, Sorry, it's way too late for another rabbit trail. (laughs) But all that to say this, let us be a people who keep our eyes on Jesus. Right? Because in the very beginning, he's got us. He's going to see the Jew through. We know it to be so. We have the end of the story. He's going to see us through. So there's no need for us to get all bound up and concerned and anxious. God's not wringing his hands. God's not pacing the floor. And we don't need to be either. So we can see these things, we can pray, we can speak the truth in love, but let us be a people who are aware and who align our worldview biblically and not culturally. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that that we find in your word, that no matter what is going on in the world or in our lives, Lord, your word is just so relevant. Lord, it, it, it directs us in the way that we should go. And I pray that we would be a people, even as we discussed this morning, who aren't arrogant towards the Jew, or that we don't think we're better, that we wouldn't be ignorant of what you're doing through them and for them, Lord, but that we would know, that we would understand, Lord, that we would be like the sons of Issachar who understand your will and understand uh, the times that we live in. Lord, help us to be a people, again, who have our eyes on the prize, who uh, aren't caught up with the headlines, but who are caught up with our Savior. And uh, we thank you, Lord, just for your faithfulness. Again, that underlying reality that we know you're going to see us through, and we can rest in that. And whenever we have any sort of question, even as Abraham did, Lord, how is this all going to work out? How do I know? Just like you made a deal with Abram, with the cutting of covenant, Lord, you made an even greater covenant with us, not with the blood of animals, but with the blood of your Son the precious blood of Jesus. And we can 
look to that and we can put our faith and hope and trust in that. And Lord, that's what we do this morning as we come to the table of communion. Lord, you knew that we would need a constant reminder of who you are and what you've done for us. That we would need a constant reminder that you've got us and that we belong to you. And I pray that as we come to the table, Lord, or that we would recognize that we don't deserve it. We can't come arrogantly as though you owe us anything. We would recognize, Lord, that we come on your merit. Lord, that we would reflect and look at our lives, Lord, and that where there's repentance that needs to take place, Lord, we would lay those things at your feet. We would change direction. But, Lord, that there would be an overarching rejoicing just in the reality, Lord, that it's not on our efforts, it's not by our merit, it's not by our strength or ability that we're going to be kept until that day. But it's by your power, Lord, even as your word declares. And so as we come to the table, we do, we remember, we rejoice and ask, Lord, that you would refresh us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.